0: Entering into a kind of a weird Point in Star Trek history now I guess you could say several points in Star Trek history Are kind of weird or interesting or whatever But here we are shifting Into this and Star Trek 6 Had come out Interest in Star Trek was basically at its relative Peak I say relative Because I mean how do you gauge that Properly but there was a lot of buzz In popular circles In popular culture about Star Trek At this point in time we had the movie Generations, which was actually announced during the break in between seasons five and six, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which was already circling around as something that they were quite interested in showcasing. In fact, by at the end of this season, a lot of the people under the hood would change for TNG, TNG, excuse me, because so many of them would shift over to working on Deep Space Nine. And Deep Space Nine will actually end up starting mid-season six. But I mention this because that's important to remember for a lot of the episodes that are about to come, including this one and the previous three, all of which were expensive. The typical approach, remember, and I've talked about this before, so forgive me, you have a budget for a season, and that's it. And a smart and careful team of producers and executives and you know, people who are actually doing their jobs as mainliner will look at that and say, okay, we need to have cheap episodes so we can spend the money where it counts. And usually there's some kind of plan, like doing several cheaper episodes in a row to spend a lot of money on a big you know, finale. Or sometimes they'll spend the money kind of in the middle, and then they'll taper off. Now that's important because each of the previous episodes that we've covered for some time now have actually been quite expensive. Inner Light had a lot of location shots and a whole lot of guest stars. Uh, the, uh, the Next Phase had a ton of special effects shots, multiple shots of the same scenes, and of course quite a few guest stars. And I'm not going to go down the list, but you get it. This last bit was rather expensive. But thanks to how well Star Trek was doing, what normally would happen didn't. What would normally happen is they'd just be like, well, we've run out of money. We're screwed. Instead, what happened is they said, okay, you can go over budget. And they were allowed to. Now, whether that's good or bad, we'll have to decide. Because that's really going to impact Season 6 more than anything else. But for the moment, it means that each of the previous episodes and this one were not hampered by budget issues. And that's important, because we know what budget issues do to television. We've seen this many times, even just on Star Trek. So, that all being said, however, this episode was originally not going to be a cliffhanger at all. They weren't going to do the two-parter thing. Instead, they were just going to do another episode, or condense this into one episode, which is something I've heard about a few times, but I wasn't able to verify, so we're just going to put that as a a maybe kind of a thing. However, as I mentioned, interest in DSpace9 was skyrocketing at this point in time, and there was a lot of rumor mongering going around that TNG was going to get dropped in favor of DSpace9. Now, if that sounds unusual, try to remember that at this point in time, having more than one Star Trek show concurrently was unheard of. It was something that had never happened, and indeed, will not happen until we get to the end of Chains of Command Part 2. But then it'll be the norm for several years in a row. And they wanted to help establish, no, TNG is still going strong. So they did the cliffhanger specifically so that even on the off chance that you didn't pay attention to the interviews, or the TV guide, or the Star Trek magazine, or anything else that was going on, if you didn't do any of that and just watched the episode, it would still be very clear, TNG is coming back next year. And that was an important message for them. However, I do feel that it is to the detriment of this episode. I'll talk more about that in part two. I have decided to talk about this in two parts. But there's several, several scenes which basically meander, which take longer to go through than they probably should. And this is the only reason I'm willing to say that this was probably supposed to be one episode rather than two, because the structure of it really does feel stretched out substantially. I mean, how much time is spent just between Mark Twain and Guinan debating back and forth things that, you know, basically vague philosophies. Several minutes are spent on two guest stars debating something that has nothing to do with anything other than the vague, ho, 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 Guinan's an alien, and that's it. Like, I'm not saying that's bad, per se. I'm just saying it is clearly stretched. Now... Let's get to the episode proper. So, they find this cave with Data's head. Why did it take them this long to find this? I would like to think that by the 24th century or 5th century, whatever we're up to at this point in time, they've kind of finished exploring Earth. Right? I mean, they're planning to raise up a new subcontinent. You remember that, back in family? I'd kind of like to think they've done mapping everything and exploring everything. But apparently they're like, nope, there's this cave we've never encountered before sure that brings me to an interesting point i want to bring up this is a joe Minosky script now that is very interesting to me now Minoski, i've praised him many times and i have blasted him many times i praise him because the man was always willing to push limits and in fact i like more of his episodes than i don't even his final outing in voyager uh, muse is an episode that i actually really enjoyed Which is funny, because I got called out and told I was really weird for really enjoying that episode, but I I stand by it. I've rewatched it since then, and I still enjoy it. The man knows how to take an idea and run with it. And he knows how to push things past normal Star Trek. The big downside with Mr. Minoski is the fact that the man does not give a crap about the why. He doesn't care about continuity. He doesn't care about believability. He doesn't care about explanations. He just says, let's just do this. This is why I've always felt that Minoski works best when paired with someone else who can help work on that side of things. He'll push the ideas in the envelope. They'll help make it cohese and co- make sense with the setting. Bam. Good episodes. Scorpion, to use a direct example. So this is just Minoski, and I'm only pointing that out now because there's a whole lot of pieces of this that don't make sense, and I've decided, even though I kind of tore into inner light for the same kind of thing, I've decided I don't want to cover each individual thing, because unlike Inner Light, which really just had, like, the three major problems, this episode has closer to, like, 27 or so. And I don't want to go, I don't want to get all nitty-gritty, and I don't want to get all nitpicky. As I said, nitpicking is something that I can do, but only if I feel that it has a purpose. Which brings me to the episode proper. This is our third time travel episode this season. Now, that may not sound unusual, There's kind of a cliche slash meme slash joke when it comes to Star Trek. And that's that Star Trek does tons and tons of time travel. I'm sure you've heard the joke at least once that Star Trek time travels more than Doctor Who. thing is, that's actually not true. There's actually a very linear trend if you actually look at how many time travel episodes are in Star Trek. There were like five, I want to say. in I don't have the list for me. There was a few in TOS. There's more in TNG. There's more in DS9, there's even more in Voyager, and there's even more in Enterprise. It just kind of kept escalating over time. I'd personally like to say that Rick Berman is most of why that's responsible, why why that's a thing. After all, Rick Berman is the reason why First Contact is is a time travel episode. But anyways, relevant point being... At this point in history, having three time travel episodes with one season was was actually kind of unusual. So they weren't really sure what they wanted to do with this. It was actually Braga who suggested making this a period piece. Now, usually when they do period pieces in TNG, they use the holodeck. That is, in fact, one of the main reasons they invented the holodeck, as I discussed. But here they wanted to actually do it as part of the time travel. Now, that was a decent idea, and I do think it helps strengthen the episode substantially. It was also very expensive and very stressful for everyone involved, but I'll get, I've already kind of covered that. So it's an interesting idea, but the, here's the really, really crazy part. I've talked before about the three main types of time travel. I'm going to cover them again really quick here. So there's type 3 time travel, which is every time you time travel, a new timeline is crafted, basically. Terminator, or the later episode Parallels here in TNG, are both examples of type 3 time travel. Type 2 time travel insists that there is only one singular timeline, and every time you change it, the timeline is changed. So it is a mutable, malleable thing, but there's just one. Uh, I'm, try- I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of an example of that off the top of my head, and I'm actually failing. <laughs> there's several examples of that. Forgive me for not having one ready to go. But then there's type 1 time travel. Now, type 1 is my personal favorite not only because it makes the most sense but because it's the it requires the most work and effort to write properly and is also the hardest to pull off by far see time one type one time travel insists that there is no alteration to time whatsoever it's what i like to call time as a linear line or in short every time you time travel you always time traveled so you were always back then And you always will be going back then, if you follow me. No timeline alteration, no additional timelines. Now, the reason I bring this up as significant here is because this is a type 1 time travel story in Star Trek, which is actually quite unusual. There are ways to explain why multiple types of time travel can exist within a singular setting. Usually it doesn't work that way. It boils down to different methods of time travel. Uh, Chrono Trigger is a good example of that. And Doctor Who, actually... (laughs) But in this case, this is a surprisingly tightly written time travel story, keeping in mind that everything that happened always happened and will happen. It's just interesting to think about, given the overall theme, uh, which we'll actually talk more about in the second half, because it, does, it barely comes up in this one. Anywho, so this is why Data's head is already there, because Data always traveled back to 1889 or whatever it was, and always will end up heading back there to... It's a loop. It's a full loop. Time is a linear line, right? Now, <clears throat> this brings us to the head of the situation. Is it lore? Good question to ask. Unfortunately, they can determine it's not lore, because it doesn't have a time... It has a type <laughs> I love the way Picard says that. But what I find amusing about this is they insist that it is, is either data or lore. Now, that makes perfect sense at the time, But given what ends up happening in the future, it's kind of funny to think that they insisted there were only two androids still present, right? Two Noonian-type androids. Yeah. What happens after this is Joe Minoski doing what he does best. There's a bunch of scenes which are, let's be honest with ourselves, filler. They are there to pad out the episode, as I mentioned earlier. And it's all about the characters reacting to the news that Data's gonna die. Now, this is why I don't call it padding, because it's not bad and it's not useless gristle. It is instead full flavor. It actually adds to the characterization of each person, showing how they react to the in- impetus of Data. Data himself is basically nonplussed about the whole thing. Or, er, not nonplussed. You know what I mean. He's, he's unaffected by it. It's like, okay... In fact, he has a fascinating conversation with Geordi, which I, I wish I could just recite for you because it's, an, it's really well done, where he talks about how he has g- grown accepting to the fact that he has friends and they will die, and then he will make new friends and then they will die. But now he can look forward to death. And he says it so straightly, so plainly. You can tell he means it with genuine sincerity. It's an interesting take on it. The old immortality is a curse concept is a very old concept. But it's nice to see this particular perspective on it. Data accepting? No. Embracing the idea of cessating someday. And of course it'll bring him, it'll, you know, I am now mortal. And don't worry, Data will never die in a ridiculous circumstance. <clears throat> Anyways. Then we have... Well, actually, then we have Guinan, who has a wonderful reaction to the news that they found Data's head there. And she just goes, ah. And you notice it takes her a second, which makes sense. After all, it's been a couple centuries at this point. But I do like her little comment to herself, full circle. That's all she says. Then we cut to Riker and Troy, and I like how they're handling it. Troy is, of course, a trained psychologist, so she's kind of trained to deal with this kind of thing. It is Riker who is far more emotional and unstable about the whole thing. He is upset and actively angry about this. And Troy has to calm him down and and rein him in several times. And there's some good character banter between he and her. And then between them and Data, once Data enters the conversation. I don't have much to say about it other than that it's good stuff. Again, good filler. So then they insist that Data's not going down... And Data's like, sir, may I speak to you? There's no good reason to do this. And Picard's like, I don't care. I don't care. We're going to keep you from that death. Damn it. We're going to cheat fate. This is not the first time, or excuse me, not the last time they'll bring up that fate comment. Anywho. It's interesting to note that one of the... Every now and again, fiction does a thing where you get evidence, and then the characters assume that evidence means blah, Lemons. And because the uh, characters say it's Lemons, the whole episode or movie or book or game insists that it's Lemons. But that is simply one conclusion from the evidence at hand. Now I bring this up because everyone assumes that this means Data's going to die, to be terminated. And yet, as we will see, there's nothing really indicating that. He lost his head, but that's it. This is Data we're talking about, who has actually been put, put, destroyed to the point of basically being ahead prior to now. Even just in TNG. Disaster that came up, remember? So this is not exactly a terminal issue for him. But everyone treats it as if it is death they're dealing with. It's just interesting to think about. Anywho, so then Data goes and gets distorted. And there's actually a pretty good scene where Data describes what's going on. This is kind of the Minoski thing. Again, I mentioned the many little flaws. There's a lot of flaws with this scene. Let's, let's, like I said, let's just skip over. It's dumb. Cloud effect. Moving on. It's a very atmospheric scene. And, of course, everyone is very tense and worried because they're thinking Data's going to die. And, lo and behold, look what happens. He goes back in time. This is where the story kind of shifts substantially. We spend a lot of time with Data back then. And I'm going to go ahead and say something. I don't, I don't know if this is going to be unpopular or not. I really like Data interacting with the past of Earth. I, I'm serious. I think it's actually a great fit. He is smart enough to cope and yet just naive enough to not fit in. Even ignoring his appearance, he still stumbles periodically with little things that he shouldn't because they're things that he doesn't consider to be substantial or significant. In fact, he should have probably picked up immediately on several things that he didn't because he was focusing on other things. And yet, Data is uniquely well-positioned to be in the past and be in a, I don't know how to phrase this, a non-threatened situation. He is smart enough, strong enough, and durable enough to basically deal with whatever. He could probably conquer the planet if he really wanted to. And I mean that sincerely. With all the da- the, the data, no pun intended, in his brain, with all the schematics and understanding of, of construction and factory building, and he has plenty of time to do it. No, he is, now this is why I like this, because usually when someone gets back to the past, they're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? How do we deal with this? And it's, it's, Painted as a very hostile environment, like it's a threat to overcome. Here, the threat isn't the past. It's the Davidians. And I like that take. Data basically dominates the past. He wins at everything he does. And normally, that would be kind of a Mary Sue situation. But here it works, especially because it makes sense. Data really is that much smarter, better, faster, stronger, etc. than everyone else at the time. And he brought some of his equipment with him. So he's not operating in a vacuum, so to speak. So it's, in addition to the him not being threatened, there's also the dynamic of him interacting with the people of the past. And there's a strange forthrightfulness about it. Usually when someone from Star Trek goes to the past, they're all befuddled and weirded out by all these crazy people and their evil money and just, you know... TNG's done that. TOS has done that. Voyager will do that. DS9 will do that. Actually, I've always found it funny that Dax over in... um, I can't think of the name of the two-parter. The one where they go back to the past because of the the district's problem. Uh, Dax was the one who was able to deal with that properly since she had both the wisdom and the fact that she's been around that long to actually process it. But similarly, Data here just kind of takes everything in stride. In short, I like it mostly because it's a different take on it. And I think it's a take that makes sense. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm banging on about this point so much. It's because I don't want to cover each individual little interaction. It's all good stuff. The way he talks to the 49er. The way he gets involved with the poker game. His face. Poker? Like, just, aha! (laughs) You could almost see the light bulb light up when he says that. Um, The way he... Uh, he makes a list of what he needs. You know, rents a room, gets privacy, gets resources, starts experimenting, putting together, and of course, he can be extremely precise. I'm reminded of the last time someone very smart went to the past, which would have been back in uh... oh god, I can't think of the name of the episode. It's the most famous episode, of TOS. I can't think of it. Spock. I am trying to construct a computer with stone knives and bear skins. I, I... <laughs> But it's a different flavor of the same thing, which, like I said, I like. So anyways, good stuff, good stuff. Um, I'm looking at the stuff here. There's a really interesting comment. They, they finally cut back to the present after quite a while in the past. And they're at a meeting room debating what to do. Riker is, of course, pissed. Of course he is. He was already upset and hurt about this. And worst fears confirmed. That's a pretty hard thing to take on the face. But what I found most interesting is they they... They know that they are doing something in the past. What are they doing? You know, the Davidians, what are they doing in the past? And this is a mystery that I should be solved by the end of the episode, but this is a mystery that they then debate. And Crusher and Worf both postulate that this might be some kind of warfare, maybe a guerrilla war through time. Now, I don't know if this is related to what would eventually become called the Temporal Cold War, or if any of them thought of that when... When this episode was being made, or, you know what I mean. Basically, when that episode was being made, when they—if if this was kind of the inspiration for that. But I have to admit that caught my attention immediately, even when I was watching this as a kid, because the idea of temporal incursions, specifically to alter someone—you know—again, a guerrilla war, is a terrifying concept, and—and and there's a lot of story potential there. Naturally, they will completely squander that over on Enterprise, but I'm getting off-topic. So, Worf also makes an interesting comment, which I remember my mom was really horrified by. He mentions that it's possible we were trapped back there with Data. If If we had died there, we would have turned to dust long ago. It's an interesting comment, because it postulates the idea that they get trapped in the cave with Data's head, And then they die slowly of suffocation, dehydration, and starvation. Fun thoughts. Truthfully, though, thinking about it, realistically speaking, it's not likely. There's simply too much that doesn't agree with that. Ignoring the fact that remains can and do stay put, especially in a non-oxygenated environment like a sealed-off cave, there's also the fact that a lot of their equipment would probably have endured to the modern era, just like Data's head did. And a pair of glasses, for God's sakes, you know anyways. It's a nice thought. Then we get to Guinan. First of all, can I just say, I love, this is another very Manoski thing. I love the idea of just this alien drink that's designed to evaporate the moment it hits your tongue, so all the flavor actually specifically comes from the vapor. That's just a, such a cool idea. I, I wonder if there's anything like that in real life. But she has this wonderful conversation where she pretty much tells Picard, you need to go on this one. Now, we already know why. And that leads pretty much immediately to 34 minutes and 10 seconds into the episode when Data finds out that Guinan is there and Guinan and Mark Twain begin pontificating for like 10 freaking minutes. It's a long scene. It's a long scene. I don't have anything to say about it other than the fact that I actually like Jer- uh, Jerry Harden. I hope I'm saying that right. He plays Clemens. He plays Mark Twain. He also played uh, Deep Throat over on X-Files. And he's played several other roles in Star Trek as well. I, I think he's a good actor and I like him. He has a, a nice kind of normalcy to him. Which, is, it's, as weird as this may sound, it's hard to portray properly in acting. So he does a good job of it. I've heard some people absolutely hate his portrayal. And that's fine. I'm curious, as ever, of your thoughts. I do want to say one thing. Guinan makes a comment. If there is a diamond... You know, if, if, if there is a diamond and it is pretty and beautiful and wonderful, does it matter if there's 50 million of them? Is it no less pretty and wonderful just because there are others like it? That's a very fascinating philosophical question and really boils down to the psychology of the individual answering it because that's going to be an opinion question. And I would love to know your thoughts on that. Does quantity, does, does the lack of rarity change the value of something, the inherent value, or the perceived value, or the real value of something? I'm not going to give any answers here, because that's not the point. I'm just curious what you guys think on that. Of course, we get what she's going for, that humanity is not unique, but that's okay. Because humanity is unique, and that's okay. After all, there's only one diamond that is that diamond, right? Anyways, so then Data finds her, and there's a scene that goes on a little bit too long, and pulls her off. I remember back in the day, obviously this question doesn't really matter anymore, but I remember back in the day thinking, was this before or after the Borg? And moment I actually had a debate, in fact, I had a debate with some of my friends in school too, about this exact topic, and we debated back and forth, was this before or after the Elorians, we didn't know the species name at the time, got hit by the Borg? Now we now know, thanks to generations, this is before. I find that funny though, because back in the day, that was my postulation as well. My main reasoning was that she speaks of space travel and her father as if they're casual normalcy. Is in her the odds of her and her father both surviving the Borg, and being in uh, sufficiently resourced to just kind of travel space and interact with? you know, pre spacefaring species was actually kind of unlikely, right? That being said, one of my friends, Vincent, I don't mind giving his name because I haven't seen him since 92 or something like that, 94 actually, uh, he had a counter-theory which I actually found very fascinating. He postulated that, no, this has to be post-Borg. Why? Because it's the best explanation for why Dinan is slumming it around on a pre-warp civilization. Because the Borg don't care about pre-warp tech, right? They'd look at Earth and say, eh. In fact, he postulated the Borg might have actually at some point in history seen Earth and been like, "Uh uh-huh, and then moved on. I mean, why bother, right? Interesting thoughts. Of course, again, generations solved this. This is before. It's just interesting. So then they reveal the big secret. The Davidians are vampires. I can't get away from frickin' vampires in my show. And these soul-sucking vampires are going back to the past to feed on people who are on the verge of death. A very interesting and very specific type of parasitism that is kind of strange to talk about and unique and also makes these things wonderfully creepy, which doesn't really get across in this or the next episode. But I'll tell you something, they do some good stuff with these guys over on STO. That's all i got for today. I'll see you guys next week for the conclusion, when we'll also be talking about Season 6 for a little bit. See you around, guys.